This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about giving professionals the tools that they need to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And today, we're going to have such a great time talking with my guest because it's a different version of success is maybe the the way that I want to start talking about this. You know, we all, every person has a different way that they define success, whether it's financial, whether it's they got the BMW, you know, whether it's that they made the the list of what you call it, you know, sold X number, have X number of customers, all these various things. But you know what? There's a different thing that we all need to be thinking about as part of our business. And that's why I am so excited to be talking with my guest today. So please join me in welcoming Alicia Alicia Bonner-Ness to our program today. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you so much, Deb. I'm so excited to be here with you. Well, now that I've just really piqued everyone's interest, let me tell them just a little bit about you. Sounds great. uh, Alicia Bonner-Ness is a brand strategist, social impact alchemist and public speaker on a mission to make purpose the business driver of the 21st century. In 2016, Alicia founded Heptagon Productions, a brand activation agency that helps organizations reimagine how they engage for change. She regularly facilitates workshops and focus groups for nonprofit leaders and has produced numerous conferences galas, and roundtable discussions to enhance the impact of mission-driven initiatives. Alicia has extensive experience helping brands translate their purpose into measurable results in thought leadership, communications, and fundraising, which is the foundation of her signature approach, the Heptagon Method. Alicia holds a Master's in Applied Economics from John Hopkins and a BA in Political Science from Barnard College. She is a Luma Institute Certified Human-Centered Design Facilitator and a Starting Block Fellow. Oh my heavens, I'm just blown away by all of that. So welcome again, Alicia. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. It's uh, you know, it's it's, it's quite something to have your your life's uh, your life's work read back at you. It's always I, uh, when you when you when you write your bios and then you hear it, and it's like, oh wow, <laughs> amazing, amazing. Time flies. Time flies, whether you're having fun or not, and things get done in the interim. Right, right. absolutely. So let's go back a little bit. You you founded your company in 2016. Tell us why and why this is truly a passion for you. Sure. Well, um, having spent about 10 years working in the social sector, Mm -hmm. uh, largely in Washington, D.C., for a range of nonprofit organizations, I made a big decision in the summer of 2016 to quit my job and join the Hillary Clinton campaign as a field organizer in Florida. Okay. Uh, now, not to get political, um, but it oh, but was. I, it, it would have been an amazing experience, I'm sure. It was. It was. It was. It was definitely. Uh, it was some of the hardest work I've ever done in my mm-hmm. life. Uh, working 80 hours a week is right. is truly, truly something. Mm-hmm. And um, it opened my eyes to what I saw as a big gap in how mission driven organizations uh, communicate and market themselves. And when mm-hmm. I say driven organizations, that's obviously a big, fairly vague umbrella. Right. I think we, we typically associate nonprofit organizations and social enterprises under that under that um, banner. Mm-hmm. But I definitely think of political campaigns as mission-driven organizations too. Mm-hmm. And so and and businesses as well. Right. Um, so I I really, you know, the other thing about campaign work that's really interesting is that it ends. So there is a day in which you have a job and then a day comes where right. you don't have a job anymore and you get to sit at home on the sofa and say, "Huh, what am I doing with that my life? That was fun. Why do I? Yeah, now what?" Um, and so it was in that moment having having spent those many months 
doing that, that very rewarding, but also very difficult work, that I came uh, to this realization, this need for a more strategic approach to um, accelerating purpose and this mm-hmm. conclusion that the you know profit and expediency has really been the primary driver of a lot of things in the right. 20th century. Mm-hmm. And that as I look at the 21st century and our need to take into account a lot of factors, technological transformation, automation, uh, reduced access to natural resources, and a growing focus on how our lives, how we actually live our lives day to day, week to week, the quality of life that we all have. Purpose appeared to me as this really core essential thing that we haven't paid enough attention to. And so I decided to build Heptagon Productions as an engine for activating that essential element of how organizations operate, starting with this idea of ideological clarity, belief, um, and we can talk more about that in terms of what what I believe the foundation of purpose really is, Mm -hmm. and driving that through to action. Now, one of the things that is um, really... uh, different about a lot of mission-driven organizations is that they don't necessarily work on a transaction basis. So there, of course, are many businesses in the world where I pay you money and you give me a good or service in return. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a lot of mission-driven organizations don't work on that model. Mm -hmm. Um, They are are delivering some higher good, some bigger value, and they're depending on donors and advocates to provide the funding that they need to to achieve the ends, the the goals that they're pursuing. Mm -hmm. And so when I say help mission-driven organizations uh, engage for change, what I mean is when you need to mobilize a community of support, when you need a community of brand activists to help you achieve the goals that you have. And that can be through purchasing, absolutely, through transaction. When you need folks to really believe in what you do, that's what we developed the Heptagon method to address. You know, and there are so many organizations out there that do good for people. And, you know, it's it's one of these tricky things. I remember years ago when we were first, when I still lived in Colorado, it was an incredibly large number, and to be honest, now all of a sudden I'm drawing a blank on it, as to how many nonprofits were registered in the state of Colorado. You know, and, and obviously, you know, there's, there's things in, in every state, every country, all of these various things. But there's, you know, it, it used to be, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you had the big guys. You had, say, the American Cancer Society, American Lung Association. You know, you had all of these big organizations, but and, and they, you know, did a great job, fulfilled a purpose, still do, you know, all those various things. But then what we started seeing, from my perspective, were a lot of very focused, very niche type of, of organizations, whether it was, you know, something that was very specific because maybe it was very passionate, you know, something very near and dear to someone's heart or, you know, all these various things. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting to see, but from the, cons- the consumer, the donor, you know, whatever, whatever it is, the, the people who are writing the, supporter, the check. The supporter. Yeah, mm-hmm. Supporter. Sometimes it gets a little complicated because you're thinking, are, is this a real organization? you know, all these various things. But we, as as the supporters, I think we all, in, in many ways, we want to help out. You know, whether it's, you know, that there's been a, a natural disaster and, hey, you know, we're going to take the, the, you know, the easy thing where you can just send a text message and contribute $5. Or maybe it is something that is very passionate that, to you that you really want to get involved with. And so I think people want to 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 fulfill that need. And so that's what I love about what you do is you help these organizations to really focus and reach the people that they need to reach with the messages that they need to to have. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I would actually say, you know, there's certainly a deep need for this work within the nonprofit community. Um, But one of the, one of the, the hypotheses that I have in, in starting this business is this idea that actually any organization can benefit from really clearly defining what they stand for and why they do what they do. Mm -hmm. And that if they take the time to bring people together, one of the things that Heptagon Productions really focuses on is is convenings and experiences that that brands can create for their constituents, whether that's a a typical conference or an online video chat or some sort of multi-day social media experience that brings people together. There are Mm -hmm. all different kinds of ways that you can help people find connections 
action and common cause. And that out of those moments comes this momentum, this real passion to say, wow, oh my God, there's so many people who believe in this thing. Mm -hmm. We are all connected to each other. We all share the same ideological clarity. Now, the, the brand can give those folks the tools to say, okay, great, go to work, help us build this, help us make this big and powerful and important. Um, and so if you just depend on the transactional value of your product, you lose out on the opportunity to really inspire people to believe in something bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, and from an employee's perspective, you know, we all know, yes, you know, we're working here and they are making money. but when we know that there is something more, something bigger, you know, things like that, it 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 helps us fulfill, you know, kind of that that passion inside ourselves. And I'm, you know, kind of rambling on this, and it's not not something new. Um, you know, many years ago, oh good heavens, you know, almost twenty years ago now, um, I worked for a, a, a large financial services corporation. I mean, at that point, we were like the fifth largest in the world, and one of the things that I managed was our philanthropic budget. It was a large budget. I mean, it was close to a million dollars back then. So this was big. I mean, it was something that the company clearly put a lot of value into. But one of the things that we did yearly, maybe even twice a year, was we polled the employees. And we said, what do you want to support? You know, and, 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 and it was a variety of things. I mean, you know, we had the, the obviously the big things. You know, we supported the children's hospital. Um, you know, various things like that. But there were other things where one thing that we supported, and we didn't support it a lot because it didn't need a lot of funds, but it was something that people felt needed, you know, supported, was a a softball team, a girls, you know, one of the the girls' softball teams, or, you know, other things. And, you know, one of the coolest things, I mean, you know, I mentioned this is a financial services company. A lot of the people there were mathematicians. They were actuaries. And so for years, we did um, projects where they be, were mentors to students, you know, whether it was helping them with math, you know, that was kind of an obvious thing, or just being, you know, mentors and things like that. And we knew how valuable that was to the employees. I mean, it was just something that, you know, if, if, if we hadn't done it, you know, if we had said, oh, well, gee, we're getting rid of that program this year, oh, there would have been an uprising. And, you know, and it was something that the employees consistently told us was very important to them. And they liked working for an organization where giving back to the community was important to them also. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I do think that those types of employee engagement programs have huge potential to inspire, you know, the, 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 the human resources of a corporation Mm -hmm. to feel connected and to feel that sense of purpose. I think what we're seeing now in the, in the 21st century is that corporate social responsibility and employee engagement is actually becoming embedded or, or bridging over into how Mm -hmm. the company itself operates. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's been really interesting in uh, looking at watching some of the events that are happening on the Southern border of the United States. Mm -hmm. Employees within Salesforce are calling, on their company to um, to terminate their contracts with customs and border protection. Mm-hmm. Um, now, not, not to render judgment on what the right choice is there, but it's really interesting when your your employees within your company become vocal advocates for mm-hmm. for a cause or an action that they think is important, and they're challenging. I mean, that would be a huge. The, the implications of that for Salesforce would be huge, and I don't know where they stand on it. Um, but that I think we're there's really a call for company to look at how are we walking the walk, not just in how we're doing right. nice things for our community, but in every part of how our, how our company operates, mm-hmm. um, from supply chain to human resource management to, to, to marketing um, and, and you know, long-term planning, really thinking about how do we, how do we live purpose within the company mm-hmm. um, as, a way to, as a way to do better, to do, right. to do, to do well by, by doing good. Mm-hmm. And you're right. Employees are voicing this more, um, you know, and, and saying, "Hey, we feel like this, or we feel that you shouldn't support that," um, you know. And and we've seen it in smaller scales, but now I think people are maybe less afraid of speaking out. I think you know clearly what's happened sometimes in the past is people thought, "Well, you know, I feel this way, but huh, I'll lose my job," um, you know. And and so they are feeling like they can say. 
this is is you know this is is a direction that we want to go in whether it's you know supporting something that has political ramifications or you know we uh, one of the things that that I've seen recently uh, you know things like we're we're no longer going to be affiliated with a company that that does business in a certain country you know actually sure. you know and and all of these various things yeah. and as I said employees are finally feeling that they they can and do have a voice um, you know unfortunately things happen I mean you know sometimes they're they're told well you know that's nice but um, but I think businesses also recognize that it is something that is is very important to their employees and if they squelch it or worse you know start firing people or at least not you know letting voices be heard you know, clearly sometimes there are financial ramifications and they have to say, you know, we understand, but we can't lose X percent of our business. You know, we just, we just can't survive. Um, you know, and, and, you know, there are various things like that, but when the employees feel that they at least can be heard, I think it's, it's a benefit to the, the companies. Absolutely. And, and I think, uh, you know, to name a more sort of uh, cut and dried example, it was employees inside of CVS who led their efforts to take tobacco off their shelves. Right. So mm-hmm. they said, if we're a company that stands for health and we have mm-hmm. a mission that says we are for the health of our communities, then that means that we can't help people smoke. We have to, we have to help people quit smoke. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, that was a, that was a very admirable uh, choice. I mean, whether I don't know what the internal politics of it looks like for them, where they they you know they really were up against the wall on it, or whether it was something that they embraced willingly. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that was a, that was a big decision. Right. Um, so, and I think that's an that's a great example of you know having a, a company like CVS where. Mm-hmm their core mission, their stated mission is health. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a point, that's exactly what I mean by ideological clarity. When you articulate what you stand for and what you're trying to do in the world, then making sure that all of your actions and all of the ways that your company operates support that is, is really, really important. Right. Well, because the consumers are going to look at that, you know, if, if, you know, it, it, it was kind of a weird mismatch when you walk into a place like CVS and they've got all of these products on the, the shelves. It's like, well, wait a minute, right. uh, you know, and, and, uh, and, and so it, it can be driven by consumers also, um, you know, and, and, and we see that happen, you know, all the time where you, you have consumers that say, well, no, no, this is, is not going to happen. Um, you know, one of the other things where I think we've seen a lot of recent activity is obviously the Me Too um, type of, of situations where it's like, no, we're not going to support an organization that, you know, that's, that's part of their culture even, you know, and, and it's, and, and again, it's people are finally comfortable with the fact that they have a voice that they can say that. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I think, you know, so purpose a little bit has become this word that's a bit like innovation in Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, we take it, it has so many connotations with it. Uh, We take it to mean something and probably what we each interpret it to mean is slightly different. Mm -hmm. So for me within, within the work that I do, I say, I believe that purpose is comprised of two things. Okay. So the first one is vision. What is the far-reaching, ambitious future that you are working towards? Mm-hmm. What's the end result that you hope that your organization, by doing its work, will achieve? Mm-hmm. The second thing is values, guiding principles. So mm-hmm. how you show up and do the work that you do mm-hmm. is just as important as the end goal that you're trying to achieve. You know, the Machiavellian notion of the ends justifying the means right. isn't really aligned to purpose. So, so. I think one of the things about Me Too that's really powerful is it's saying, um, you know, you can't just be an organization that does good things. You actually, that has an ambitious vision or, or you know, sexy impact. You have to be an organization that is good on its values, mm-hmm. that you protect your people, that you don't, um, you know, you don't submit your employees to abusive behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that, you know, that having broken the silence on that, now, um, I, I think you're absolutely right. We, we're, we're in a different cultural moment where there is a bit more um, 
people, people are, people are finding the courage to find their voice mm -hmm. uh, because they feel that they, they will be supported in, in doing that. There's less, a lot less fear about mm -hmm. what the potential ramifications of that are. Obviously not universally. There are still many communities where there's lots of fear and, and cause for fear. Mm -hmm. It's entirely justified, but it is really, um, encouraging to see organizations begin to respond to that kind of uh, outspoken behavior, both by employees and certainly by, by consumers and, and, you know, constituents as mm -hmm. well. Right. You know, and, and again, as consumers, we really start monitoring and, and even policing that, um, you know, and, and asking those questions. You know, there's, uh, I'm, I happen to be a breast cancer survivor. So that's one of those things that I really look at. You know, so if it's an organization that says, we give X number of dollars, I'm like, really? Do you? You know, and, and it's not that I'm being skeptical, it's, do you? Um, you know, there's, and, and we see things like that all the time where people, you know, they, they, they will say, you know, we take X number of, of, you know, percentage from every sale or whatever it is. I want to know that they really do donate that. Um, you know, right. and it's not just, hey, you know, we, it, it's, you know, the, the flavor of the month. And so we're going to uh, say that we're doing that, but we're really not. Um, right. And, and unfortunately, we see a lot of organizations who do that. And that's kind of the sad thing is, is you will have an organization that purports to have that mission. And then it's really not, you know, they used it more as that sales tool to get you in the door, to get you to, to affiliate with them. You know, and the same thing happens with nonprofits. And, you know, we, we see that all the time where, unfortunately, the amount that you give, a very small portion actually goes towards what it was. Um, you know, that was one of the things, you know, many years ago when I worked for the American Cancer Society, there we, we had to know, and, and I did media relations, so I had to know out of every dollar donated, how much actually went to patient services. Um, you know, and, and clearly there are ways that you can kind of tweak and play with numbers, you know, and kind of, you know, every, you know, all those, those various things. But, you know, it, it, people wanted to know, okay, if I give you a dollar, if 85 cents of that dollar go towards administrative costs, well, that's not really all that good. Um, you know, and, and so that's kind of one of those things too. And, and people more and more are, are looking at things like that because, yeah, as I mentioned at the start of the program, we have so many options that we can give to, that we can support. So we want to know that it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not going to buy somebody the, the big fancy jets and the fancy cars. Right. And, the, and there's also this point, um, it's, it's interesting because I was actually in a store yesterday where there was a product being marketed at the, at the checkout counter that said, um, all of the revenue from the sale of this product will oh. be donated a cause. Mm. And that was the first time that I'd seen that because a lot of companies say, you know, all of the profits from the sale right. of the product or a portion or mm. a portion of proceeds will be donated, um, which are all the, this like edging language, right? To say like, oh, well, we're going to give something to somebody, right. but we're going to decide how, the net how much sales. seven yeah. is. <laughs> exactly. And I just thought it was so, um, I'll, I'll say the name, it was Lush Cosmetics, which oh. is a, which is a, a brand that is making, um, you know, really high quality skin mm -hmm. and personal care products. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought, I, I, I took note of that. I was like, oh, wow, they're making this product mm -hmm. and, you know, both they're giving away the, the cost of this product and the mm -hmm. profits from this product as a way to, as a way to uh, contribute to a social cause right. that is important to them. And mm -hmm. of course there's benefits in both, you know, by, mm -hmm. by con contributing that, uh, those, that, that, that contribution is tax deductible mm -hmm. in some. Um, but that it is, a, a, it seemed to me a very honest way of, mm -hmm. a very transparent way of, of staking a claim and what they care about. And I think you're absolutely right. Consumers are policing authenticity, right? Mm -hmm. they, are, they, are the, they are the people who are saying, if something smells fishy, they're going to call you on it. Right, um, and and I think one of the one of the the downsides of this is that a lot of organizations are now quite uh, a lot of companies are quite fearful of consumer mm -hmm. backlash. Right? right, they're they're afraid of doing the wrong thing at the mm -hmm. wrong time, um, and that leading to you know some sort of reputational cost. Mm -hmm. um, I I think that 
you know, we, we live in a moment now where, where everything moves so fast, mm-hmm. you know, or the, the, the speed at which new content is born, at which the media cycle turns is so rapid. Um, I would just encourage business leaders to, to maybe focus more on the positive side of really being authentic in their, pur- their purpose rather than being afraid of that policing factor. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I think that I think that when you really commit to it, it's okay if you make mistakes sometimes, mm-hmm. so long as you correct course based mm-hmm. on based on the feedback that comes through from your customer. Um, but you know, sometimes I see corporations that are either in states of para- you know they're paralyzed by fear about what consumers are going to think, or they're hedging based on a fear that there could be you know a backlash repercussion to something. Somebody might put something on. Somebody Facebook. might put something on the internet and say something. Something bad about us, um, and that that yeah that that very well may happen. But mm-hmm. the the truth is that there you're. I believe that companies that really embrace their ideological clarity with conviction, that that real clear purpose, they shine that bright light. Mm-hmm. Even if they make mistakes, they can overcome those mistakes by doubling down on saying, you know, we're sorry, we did something wrong, we didn't think it was going to have the result that it did, or you know, somebody said something that they that they didn't mean or that they shouldn't have said. Um, um, and like, it's okay because now we're doing more of this good thing. Right. You know, I think I think a brand that's so fascinating in the in the journey that they've had over the past. Gosh, uh, I guess more than ten years is um, is BP British Petroleum. Right. You know, where they had the Deepwater Horizon situation mm-hmm. that happened in uh, Louisiana, which is mm-hmm. obviously devastating and terrible. Um, and they have put a huge amount of money into the the. Gulf communities to try to make up for for what has happened. Mm -hmm. And I I mentioned BP actually because I I just came through the United Kingdom um, from on my way back from vacation. And I noticed as I was going through security, they had all of these advertisements, like big full wall advertisements in the Mm. security area um, that were advertising. um, They were promotionals for the Paralympics um, and they were Mm -hmm. specifically focused on individual athletes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was basically like power, you know, drive, like they were, they were making the connection between oh, okay. mm-hmm. the grit, determination and power mm-hmm. of each of these, um, these Paralympic athletes as sort of a, you know, it didn't really have anything to do with, with gas specifically. Right. It was drawing on this notion mm-hmm. that like what you have in your engine is part of partly defines mm-hmm. how your success. Right. And right. I just thought it was a very, um, it was it was very authentic and they're you know using the fact that they support this very important and and very effective organization um as a means for them to emphasize the point of what they stand for right, right. that they stand for peak performance and drive mm-hmm. um and your your ability to get where you're going and to achieve your goals in a sense in terms of you know getting from from point a to point b um with 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 power mm-hmm. um and so i i think that you know, I just, I, I, it's remarkable to me that a, that a company that was in such an incredible crisis at one point, um, you know, now has really reclaimed their, their, I think their brand capital in very mm-hmm. significant ways, um, obviously at a financial cost, I'm sure, but that there's nothing that you, I, I think that, I think Deepwater Horizon uh, goes to the point that there's nothing that you can't come back mm-hmm. from, right? Um, even if it's a circumstance that's largely, uh, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say outside of your control because I think that would let a few a few people off the hook who might not uh, yeah. mm-hmm. be let off the hook. But you know, where it's like, you know, things um, stuff hits the fan real hard, and there's a lot of spray back that that you don't necessarily mm-hmm. anticipate or have plans to control for, um, and you can still pick up the pieces slowly mm-hmm. but surely um, and wind up and wind up being in a being in right. a good position again. So yeah, I think I think operating from a position of fear around purpose is not as good an idea as really operating from a position of of conviction mm-hmm. uh, and trying to find ways to to showcase that purpose visibly for your customer. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love the example that you provide with BP because it does show that they took a horrible tragedy, you know, and 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 changed it. I mean, they could have easily just shut down the company. I mean, you know, right? And, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or or worse, gone on like nothing had happened. You know. Oh well. Hmm, yeah. Hmm, yeah. 
but instead, We're sorry, yeah, yeah, oopsie, <laughs> right. um, you know, and and that I think is where people get really annoyed is when it's the, you know, we're just going to ignore it and act like it never happened Um, because people remember and they look stuff up. You know, we've been talking about the internet. You know, I remember, and this was several years ago, I actually uh, knew someone who was in the public relations department, very high up with Hewlett Packard. And this thing hit social media where it was um, a military person who was, you know, deployed and his printer didn't work. His, his HP printer didn't work. And so he tried to return it to HP and HP said, oh no, you can't do that because you're not in the United States. And, you know, and, and he was like, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm serving the country, yada, 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 all this stuff. And needless to say, you know, things were, were hitting the fan. So I immediately contacted my friend and I said, danger, danger. And she said, okay, first of all, that was something that happened five years ago. And she said, and here are the steps that we have taken to change that. And so, uh, and, and they did. I mean, you know, they, they revamped their policy, all sorts of things. And so anytime those old posts popped up, which, you know, these, these things happen. We see these things all the time where it's like, do you know that post is like six years old? Mm-hmm. But they immediately responded and said, you know, this, this was something that happened. Here are the steps that we have taken, um, you know, and, and here's what we have done since then. Um, so they didn't ignore it. They didn't say, well, that was five years ago, so we don't care. They said, you know, okay, here's, because it, people didn't care that it was five years ago. They didn't notice those dates, um, you know, and, and so they used it as a way to say, here are the steps we have taken to make things better. Um, and I think that was, it's a great example of how companies can do that. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, a, you know, an, an incredibly large company like BP, like Hewlett Packard, you know, Microsoft, whatever it is, you could be, you know, the little mom and pop place around the corner or, you know, somebody like me who's, you know, just a one person shop. We have to always stay on top of those things and we can't do the, you know, oh, well, that happened a while ago, so it's not, it doesn't matter. You know, we should be able to say, here's what we have done to fix it in between. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I, um, I'll, I'll just share one personal anecdote that I, that I had with this, with this recently. I was on, a, I was on an airplane from uh, Brussels to the United States on Delta, mm-hmm. and we had, a, um, we had an engine malfunction on takeoff. Oh, no. Um, which, you know, it was basically an engine stall as, mm-hmm. the, as the plane was taking off, and mm-hmm. it, it ultimately caught and came back on, but they, you know, they, they, talked, to, they talked to HQ, and HQ mm-hmm. was like, nope, we're not doing transatlantic with potentially mm-hmm. a faulty engine, right. when everybody on the airplane just heard that happen. Yes, yeah, um, you're like, excuse me. <laughs> right, right. Everybody's waiting, and the plane actually, I mean, no one panicked, but everyone was very much like, oh, what's happening mm-hmm. next? Right, right. What was really interesting about this scenario is I I got to watch a company go through their crisis response protocol, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, what happens? And in the, in the grand scheme of things, this something going wrong was very small, right? Right. Nobody was hurt. Nobody came out of their seats. No, nothing, right? It was really like a, you could hear the the malfunction happening. The engine caught, everything was fine. But we, you know, we landed on the tarmac. Mm -hmm. Um, We were kept out on the runway because there could have been, you know, it's the whole thing, the the emergency protocol and process. And, and I just have to say, I mean, I tweeted at them after the fact, but Delta handled that whole situation with so much grace. It was incredible from taking people, you know, having a hotel already set up, taking people to the hotel, giving them a voucher for their dinner, making sure that they had transportation back to the airport the next day. They actually wound up booking a whole new flight because they weren't able to rebook everybody Mm-hmm. on existing flights. Oh, okay. Um, and then they, because of EU laws, they actually w- compensated all of the, all of the passengers ah. monetarily for mm-hmm. having had their flight mm-hmm. uh, postponed mm-hmm. to, to the following day. And I just, I, you know, going through an experience like that, where you, you sort of, your life flashes before your eyes a little mm-hmm. bit of like, wow, that could have been, that could have gone very, very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's always so reassuring when you do find yourself in the hands of an organization that has thought through all of the potential uh, crisis, you know, and of course, mm-hmm. transporting people through, you know, in aluminum canisters through the air is one of the more high risk endeavors right. that a corporation could, 
can, can undertake. But um, it was really, it was really gratifying. At no point in the process was I standing there crossing my arms, tapping my foot, being like, y'all really should have thought of this. Mm-hmm. They really thought of everything. Um, and it's, you know, I think it, it, it goes to the point of, um, you know, Delta is one of the highest rated airlines mm-hmm. in, in, in the world. Um, and they really do put their, their, their customer experience uh, front and center and how they think about how they think about everything, even in a, even in a moment of crisis. So I think that, you know, that's an example of lived, I got to benefit mm-hmm. from their lived purpose mm-hmm. as a, as a passenger. Um, and that I think is, is, is really powerful. You mm-hmm. know, when you, I mean, I've, I've been telling this story to people for weeks about how scary it was, but also how, um, how incredibly seamless it mm-hmm. was. And that, you know, from a crisis, a brand ambassador is born. Um, So you can can turn anything into an opportunity. You know, and and I think that's what so many people forget is this whole word of mouth thing. Um, You know, and and the fact that they could, you know, again, say Delta could do an ad. We do this and this and this. But it's people like you going out and advocating for them that is so important, um, you know, because we believe you. You know, if we just saw an ad, we're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. They paid for that. Um, but when Marketing. when we have somebody else say it, then it, it makes the the point. Um, you know, I mentioned the fact that you know I worked for that that big financial services company, and and we had you know that that large hefty budget. And I I remember I asked the CEO. I said, why? You know, and 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 you know he started to do the it's the right thing to do, and and I said no. Uh-uh. Yeah. Well, I, I also do media relations, so I'm not going you know, to. And he said, well, he said, it is the right thing to do. He said, first of all, we make a lot of money. And, and he said, but more importantly, the people we are helping could eventually be employees. They could, you know, he said they could be, um, you know, we sold life insurance. He said, so they could purchase our products, all of these various things. He said, so <clears throat> by getting in their good graces now, you know, it, it pays off in the future. Um, and then he, the, the other thing is, you know, when you do this and you have kind of this good stuff in your, your bank, you know, these good feelings, then if something goes wrong, it is easier to fix. Um, you know, if it's a company that is continually just horrible and awful, then we just expect it. But if it's a company that really does good things and something bad happens, we tend to forgive it more easily. Absolutely. Yes. I think uh, Stephen Covey is the one we should probably credit with the notion of the, the, the credits and debits on your, on your life account, right? Mm-hmm. That um, if, you, if you are always drawing down, mm-hmm. you're going to wind up at zero or negative. Right. Um, and that if you, are, if you are paying into your account of goodwill on a regular basis, mm-hmm. um, some debits here and there that right. might not have been I mean, foreseen are much more human. easily mm-hmm. forgiven. Absolutely. We all make mistakes. It's about how we, how we compensate for them. Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely. Well, now, Alicia, one of the things when I was reading your bio, it, it mentioned, and I, I love this concept, and I want you to explain it more, and that's that you are a social impact alchemist. What the heck does that mean? What the heck is social impact alchemy? So social impact alchemy um, for me is about the idea that we we are approaching a moment of enormous transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, profit has been the primary driver of a whole lot of things for all of the 20th century and really m- many, many centuries and decades before that. And, and I would argue that we're seeing this the emergence of purpose as the driver of progress in the mm-hmm. 21st century, the need to really find deeper purpose and how and and why we do what we do. Mm -hmm. But the problem is we can't just put a stop sign in the middle of the road and tell everybody to turn right, right? right? There's enormous amounts of infrastructure and momentum built into our industrial systems and, Mm -hmm. and our ways of operating in the world. And so for me, social impact alchemy is about how do we create, uh, how do we create sort of a catalyst conversion uh, pipeline by which systems that have operated one way for a long time can find ways to bend the arc a little bit, to bend the pipe, to say, okay, well, we've been doing it this way, but here's a pathway by which we can begin to 
change how we think about the value of this particular revenue stream or of this particular supply chain. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important in that process is human-centered design. Mm-hmm. Um, human-centered design is a growing industry of practice that says what happens when we put the user, when we put the human being and how they exist in the context of this product or service at the heart of how we're doing what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the human in, in this case could be a customer. The human could be someone who's um, affected by supply chain. The, the human could be the beneficiary of an organization's philanthropic work or of a nonprofit services. Um, but really then say, how do you bring the humans into the room together mm-hmm. and give them the tools to uh, use empathy as a pathway from which to understand their shared experience, their shared values, and to come up with new solutions, right? Mm-hmm. So um, a, lot of, a lot of solutions development in the corporate domain is done by consultants in back rooms um, who are often using data as a, as a primary source, which mm-hmm. is, is, it has a lot of strengths and a lot of capacities. But one of the things that I advocate for in the context of social impact alchemy is finding solutions that never would have occurred to you because you're so embedded in the, in the, in the product as delivering the way we've always done it. This is the way we've always done it. That when you bring the customer in and you hear about how the customer experiences the problem in the day to day and you empower that customer to say, Hey, how would you, how would you address this problem? What are the tools that you see or what are the things that you'd like to have that there are opportunities to turn what has been, to turn the past reality into new possibilities. Mm-hmm. And so that I do really see that as an alchemy moment where it's not, it's not, a, it's not a hard and fast right turn. Um, it's not about putting an immediate stop to certain things and you know, launching a whole bunch of new initiatives. It's mm-hmm. really about thinking about how do we create those moments of conversion and how do we look at the status quo in a way that is compassionately critical Mm -hmm. to say, where are the opportunities for us to change how we do things Mm -hmm. in a way that has slightly or potentially significantly less waste and delivers more value to our customers? Or how do we take waste from an existing product that we have and convert that into a product that serves other customers who we hadn't necessarily imagined existed before? Mm -hmm. Um, so I think these, you know, the, the, there are so many opportunities to de- develop disruptive solutions that haven't even been considered. Um, and when we talk about, you know, the whole, the word disruption, I think leaves business leaders feeling fearful of like, ah, we don't want to be disrupted. And it's going to cost us money. It's going to cost us money. You know, everything costs money and change is inevitable. Mm -hmm. So rather than letting change hit you in the face like a tidal wave, um, or to go back to a previous example, like Deepwater Horizon, you can be on the, you know, you can be the Lewis and Clark of the operation. You can be out in front pioneering new ways of doing things and inviting people in uh, to source their ideas and experiences as inspiration for, for new modes of business. So mm-hmm. I think that that alchemy mindset is really important for organizations that do have uh, a long history of doing things a particular way, a lot of st- a confirmation bias. Um, who adhere very closely to the status quo simply because it's the easiest thing to do, that when you start to think about opportunities for transformation and, and, and embrace some of the mystery that comes with that, right, that you don't necessarily know what the answer to the question is going to be when you embark in the process, mm-hmm. that a lot of, a whole lot of good can come out of that. Right. Well, and it is about thinking outside the box and, and you know, doing things differently. And, and we do get caught up in the trenches. The, you know, this is, we, we obviously have to make a profit for our business. Um, and I always tell people nonprofits don't mean no profit. They have to make money too. Um, you know, otherwise they can't do what it is that they want to do. Um, but yeah, thinking about different ways to do things. I saw a story just the other day about someone who is taking plastic bags, you know, the plastic grocery bags, and they are crocheting them into mats and, you know, and, and a people size mats. And they're giving them out to the homeless. 
And it's waterproof, obviously. You know, it's, it, it insulates, you know, so if it's colder temperatures, if it's warmer temperatures, it's, it's an insulation thing, you know, all these various things. And, you know, and, and the companies that, you know, so, you know, they went to grocery stores and they said, hey, you know, you're collecting all of these bags. What are you going to do with them? And they went, Ugh. and they said, what if we do this instead? And it was really just kind of one of those, kind of, and we, we laugh about this phrase, but an aha moment where, you know, somebody went, what if we did this and made this happen? And, you know, it, it costs nothing to take those plastic bags and have people, you know, make these mats out of them. But it was something that can be so beneficial. Absolutely. Yeah, I do think that, I mean, that's a great example. And I, Lord knows we need fewer plastic bags roaming around the the streets. Um, I do think something that I would caution about in the context of, of, of developing new solutions, and that's definitely something that's embedded in the process of human-centered design, mm-hmm. is taking care to uh, validate, or we often say invalidate your assumptions. Right. So it's easy to come up with a solution that, mm-hmm. that seems novel or right. unique mm-hmm. and say, uh, oh yeah, if we just do this, people will like it. Uh-huh. The unspoken is, will people, will the user you in- right. Right. tend for it actually embrace it well, so you know in this case you'd want to do some some i mean there's a whole other thing to be said about homelessness and how right. it would, and, and would they even use but, the mats right like yeah. user testing mm-hmm. with right. with mm-hmm. homeless people there, there seems to be like a little bit of an ethical mismatch to me mm-hmm. there in that um but the but the you know that that you always have to use you, you have to create a circumstance where your your user is the expert on the solution right. mm-hmm. or the product that you're developing. Yeah. yeah. And well, sure they another have example set. of that that seems to be, you know, a, a backfiring a little bit because it wasn't completely thought through is is, you know, it's it's a good thought to start with. And that's the elimination of straws. You mm-hmm. know, so much plastic, you know, you mentioned all the, the plastic bags, I mean all the straws. All these various things going into landfills, all these things, and people don't like the biodegradable ones because they, you know, they get ugly and all those things. And so it's like, okay, well, we're just going to do away with straws. Sounds great, right? Until you realize that if you are a disabled person, sometimes the only way you can drink is by using a straw. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that was one of those things that was kind of like a, oh. and and ableism ableism at its worst right you know and and nobody even thought about that and you know and and then it was funny because i was reading you know that the bendy straws you know we call them the i'm sure there's some official name but the bendy straws were actually created by someone in a hospital Mm -hmm. his daughter um you know and and so yeah it's it's one of those things that sounds great i mean it would it would eliminate a lot of waste a lot of plastic but is there going to be, uh, you know, a, a problem with, you know, with with somebody else? You know, for you know, in this example, you know, if if somebody who is disabled can no longer drink a beverage, well, that's a big problem. Sure. Um, you know, and and so it's and but the, then the problem gets in the fact that we get caught up in the we focus group it to death. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. There's, you know, there's always a danger. Well, so, I mean, I think, uh, something, a, a, a thing we say in my family a lot, which I, which I always remind myself of is, um, you know, everything in moderation, including moderation. Right. I, I think that, I think the, you know, the idea of bans on products are mm-hmm. probably in general, not the best way to right. humanly address the mm-hmm. solution. Mm-hmm. Um, something that happened in Washington DC around plastic bags is they created a um, they created a public fund where they decided to they passed legislation where they would charge five cents for every plastic bag right. and the proceeds from that would go into a public fund oh, okay. that was designed to clean up the Anacostia River which mm-hmm. had had a huge amount of pollution mm-hmm. and the idea was we're going to create this tax and over three years we're going to you know raise a million dollars because we look at the current use of plastic bags across the city and it more or less correlates to that. What happened was use of plastic bags went way down so fast that they weren't actually able to reach the funding target for the Anacostia cleanup. Project. So people did really good, but it people did work. really good. Well, I mean, it worked in a in a sense that they right, created the plastic bags. Right. The, the, the incentives mm-hmm. were 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 correct, um, but as soon as you made it optional, do you want a bag with that? Oh, that'll be five cents. That 
five second conversation between a cashier and a customer meant that people became a lot more savvy about carrying reusable bags with them on a regular basis or to the to the store. Or if you're a woman carrying a purse or any per any human carrying a purse, because mm-hmm. not just women can carry right. a purse, mm-hmm. you have a bag that you use for, for work or, or life. And you have a small enough object, you can just put it in there. You don't, we have such a habit around bags. So I know. Uh, going back to this notion of social impact alchemy, I think the, the idea of, oh, well, it's trash, ban it. That's not what I'm talking about. Instead, right. I would mm-hmm. encourage people to say like, hmm, we have all of these single-use plastics mm-hmm. that are creating a problem in our environment mm-hmm. um, that are hugely, you know, it's the, the food service industry is incredibly dependent on how these things get used. Mm-hmm. So how could we bring together people, you know, serv- servers in a, a restaurant or food service context or baristas in a coffee context with coffee drinkers mm-hmm. and fast casual food shoppers, right? right? People who together, you can give them the tools to say, what are alternatives to this? Mm-hmm. What are ways that, that we could deal with this? Um, I think, you know, something that irritates me no end is when I'm given, especially those little teeny tiny stir straws. I know. I'm like, I don't um, need a little I don't need tiny that. Why? You know, so, so making it permission-based, mm-hmm. I think, is that we're, we're, we're adding some cost to the consumer such that the such that the, the server is mm-hmm. then in a position to ask whether they, they want that or right. not. Um, well, and, and the option, you know, right. back to the straw conversation. Do you want option. a straw or not? You know, right. just don't plunk down straws because if they're there, we pick them up, right? It's You'll use them, right. Yeah. Well, and so often they take the, you know, they take the paper off it and they put it in without even, without even saying anything, like right. asking, do you want this or mm-hmm. not? Right. But I think that's, those are the, and of course, you know, reducing single use plastics uh, has serious bottom line implications mm-hmm. for the packaging industry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're speaking very casually about, oh, you know, help people eat right. in and use but that's, that's and that's somebody that's somebody's mm-hmm. bottom line. Right. Um, so, so I, you know, challenging those players to say, okay, well, guess what? There's mm-hmm. some, you know, there's a tsunami coming for your industry that's, mm-hmm. that's challenging right. you How to, can to we reduce waste. Mm-hmm. Right. How can right. you change? How can you, you know, create compostable products mm-hmm. or do like maintain a position in the marketplace, but do so in a way that is, is more sustainable um, or, you know, has, has uh, a lesser environmental, environmental footprint. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, something that I'll say as we're on this topic is I think the, the management of recycling systems is also a place where there is a huge need for improvement oh, and right. innovation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just got back from from some time in Europe, and I'm so impressed by the fact that they have four way separation bins mm-hmm. everywhere in the airport, in the in your hotel room, in you know, I mean, every single place. There's paper. There's there's bottles. There's plastic. Mm-hmm. There's there. You know, they're just really and they even make it so that the the size of the hole through which you can put the thing corresponds to the shape of the product. Mm -hmm. So the paper slot is always flat and the bottle slot is always round. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're they're, they're just um, really doing the work to help the the consumer understand how to support a better supply chain. Um, And I think, especially in the United States, um, we are really, really struggling with that in terms of, you know, you go to a restaurant, a fast casual restaurant and there is recycling for bottles mm-hmm. and then trash. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you know that that's like, mm, I don't like those options. Can we make more options for how we can process the, the things that I'm using in the course of, of having this meal? And likewise, I think, um, you know, some, uh, uh, something that I've, I've noticed in my travels over the past few years is that um, you know, people other than Americans think that it's really weird that we eat in cars Mm-hmm. Right, yep. that we eat going places. Right, uh-huh. that eating in transit, consuming food in transit, is this really strange thing. Um, and as we've become so hurried and distracted in our consumption of technology and so so on, um, couldn't we maybe think about how we could alchemize to spending taking things for here? What right. is it like to have a, a, a for here cup mm-hmm. be the de facto for a coffee shop mm-hmm. or? 
you know, a for here bowl be something that I use at a fast casual restaurant. And if I want it to go, then I have to request it specifically mm-hmm. that way. Right. Um, so I, I think that there's room for it. That's what I mean by social impact alchemy mm-hmm. is the ways that we can reinvent how we can reimagine new possibilities mm-hmm. out of what has for so long been the way we've done things. Right. Well, and it's interesting. I had a, another guest on who was talking in, in a lot of ways about the same thing, about how, you know, things change. You know, we had, obviously, the Industrial Revolution, you know, all these various things, and companies have to adapt or go out of business. Um, and the companies that adapt, in many cases, end up being even more profitable, um, you know, and, and so it's the companies that go, oh, my gosh, I can't do that. You know, it's like, okay, well, then we're sorry, but technology, whatever, is going to pass you by. Um, You know, all the people that are afraid that they're going to lose their jobs because of automation, because of robotics. Well, somebody has to maintain those, you know, and and all these various things. So it's, it's all about looking at it and going, okay. This needs to change. And, and we're not even saying this was wrong. It's, it's time for it to change. Um, you know, and, and I think that's what's important is, you know, it, it isn't that phrase, well, this is the way we've always done it, so we're always going to continue doing it that way. No, you know, it's, it, it has to change. Right. Right. I mean, we used to use outhouses and, and, right. and whale fat candles, too. Mm-hmm. Right. That doesn't that we, we've stopped doing that because it's it's no longer um, efficient, expedient or enjoyable. And I would just you know, I would I would, I think, call on Clayton Christensen, who the author of The Innovator's Dilemma, who I'm pretty sure is the person who said um, you have to disrupt yourself or someone else will. Mm-hmm. So, right. You know, that's it, it, it's it, it's really in that in that culture of, of fear of, mm-hmm. Ooh, what's going to happen? We don't know. Let's hunker down and wait. Um, really the benefit lies in running towards the possibility of new and different things mm-hmm. because right. that's what, that's what your, that's what your potential disruptors right. are doing as well. Because if you don't run toward it, you're probably just going to get run over. <laughs> exactly. Very well said. Very well said. Hey, hey, you know, my, my flash of inspiration for the day. Yeah, that's well, great. Alicia, we only have a couple of minutes left. This has been absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure we could continue this discussion for hours. Um, but tell people a little bit about what they would find if they worked with Heptagon Productions. Sure. Um, well, we work with organizations in three verticals. So we do work in branding, which is involves uh, work around that ideological clarity, finding organizational purpose mm-hmm. for new initiatives, developing identities, so logos um, and, and brand names. We also do a lot of work around message and audience targeting. So okay. uh, connected to what, we, what I mentioned earlier in terms of human-centered design, knowing who your audience is mm-hmm. and being able to speak to their specific interests and concerns. So that's all part of our branding practice. Mm-hmm a lot of work in event production and experience design. How do you bring people together and make them feel like they are a part of your brand, that they are connected to it, that they okay. have drunk the Kool-Aid and, and, and claimed the common cause. Mm-hmm. And then we translate, we help brands translate the momentum from those experiences into sustained community engagement, whether that's through content development or community design, helping people launch and curate uh, communities on social media or elsewhere, Mm -hmm. figuring out how to help those brand advocates take action on behalf of the guiding principles, the the, the ideological clarity that your your organization has to achieve your goals. So we, we... through the Heptagon method, we, we deal with that entire life cycle, moving from ideology to action. Right. And again, it doesn't matter if you're a one-person business or a large for-profit corporation or a non-profit entity, volunteer organization, whatever it is, you need to be thinking about all of this. And so definitely I want people to check out your website because there's some great information there, which is very simple. It's heptagonproductions.com. That's right. And you can sign up for my uh, newsletter there and get updates from us. We do uh, very frequent online learning opportunities for people to get inspired and engaged on some of the core aspects of the things that we work on. So we we pride ourselves in offering folks the opportunity to learn and get started in putting purpose at their heart and finding ways to engage for change. Right. 
You know, and back to what we were saying at the very start, you know, yes, we need to make money. Yes, you know, our businesses need to thrive because we have other people who are saying, hey, we need bills, you know, all these various things. But at the end of the day, we want to feel good about what we're doing, um, you know, and, and the companies and organizations that we are working with, supporting all these various things. And I think, you know, it's, it's something that more and more is just something that is absolutely critical to us. I agree 100%. Well, you know, Alicia, this has been absolutely fascinating. And as I said, you know, we could talk about this all day. So we'll just have you on again and we'll just keep talking about this. Um, That sounds great. Great. Thank you so much for being on our program today. I am Deb Creer, having an absolutely wonderful time talking with Alicia Bonner-Ness of Heptagon Productions. And until next time, everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. You've been listening to C-Suite Radio. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.